Ananu listeners are warned that we'll be talking about people who are now deceased. It sounds like the plot of a science fiction horror movie. A weird mutant virus, deadlier than the plague, suddenly appears on Earth. People start dying, first by the score, then by the hundreds. Doctors are baffled. All the resources of modern science can't help them find the cause, let alone the cure of the epidemic. The public begins to panic. He says quarantine is the only way to stop them spreading the disease. Federal and state health ministers prepare for tomorrow's crisis meeting on AIDS. Force predicts it will continue to double every six months to its expected peak late this century. 1985 in Sydney was the height of the HIV AIDS death crisis. I was 19 or something. So that year, six of my friends who were all in their early 20s died. It was very threatening. It was, it was frightening. Frightening time to be a gay man. I've seen these guys that I went to uni with or these guys that I knocked around with in pubs in Sydney dying and dead, and I just thought, I don't want to be one of those. And if I stay here, I will be, because uh, we didn't know anything about HIV really then. We didn't even really know what caused it or anything else. It was terrifying. So running away was kind of a legitimate thing to do, I think. This is Sound of Mind, a podcast about strange journeys. I'm Lawrence Bull. I opened up the paper and there was an ad for an anthropologist. I'd never seen one before or maybe since. So I applied for the job in the paper and they said, will you come for an interview? Yeah, okay. Can you come for two weeks? I thought, Jesus, what kind of interview is this? And they told me to bring all of this gear for two weeks because we were going to be out in the desert. So I flew to Alice Springs and I had all of my stuff in a nice suitcase. There used to be this designer in Sydney called Stuart Membry. Most of my casual clothes were Stuart Membry clothes. And so I kind of arrived in Alice Springs on the plane in a pair of apple green corduroy puffy pants and a very oversized flannelette shirt that was bright blue with little Swiss skiers on it or something. Just ludicrous. I must have looked like a clown. Even in the 80s it was ludicrous? Oh, no, in the 80s it was high fashion. I got out of the airport in Alice Springs, which was just a tin shed in those days, and there was a Toyota Trayback waiting to pick me up with three people already in it. So they chucked my suitcase on the back and then chucked me on the back of this Trayback, and we drove for 500 k's (laughs) south of Alice Springs into the desert on rough tracks. And I was really glad for the hat that my workmates had given me because I would have burnt to a crisp otherwise. After we'd driven for 500 kilometres, we camped overnight. I'd camped in the sense that I'd been away on caravanning holidays when I was a child, but I'd certainly never slept in a swag or slept around a campfire, but had to do that for the next... 14 days so I didn't even know things like what was the polite way to go to the toilet or what do you do to keep yourself clean you were a Sydney boy a high fashion Sydney boy I was an absolute inner city Sydney gay boy who was suddenly chucked into this completely strange environment I was incredibly moved by how beautiful it was there, which I wasn't expecting. 
the thing that people notice when they go to central Australia is how red the earth is. But the air is so clear, particularly in winter. New growth is this incredibly vivid light green that really contrasts with the red of the ground. The sky is immense there. It's just not broken up by anything. You don't see clouds for a start. This enormous, enormous bowl of blue that starkly contrasts with the earth. The colours are just bizarre. You can't believe that they're real. A lolly pink spider with legs that were striped yellow and pink. Everything just seemed both alien and fabulous. I suppose your outfit was the other thing that contrasted with the... Yeah, well, it kind of fitted in after a while. Everything you wear, doesn't matter what, ends up orange. You end up orange and so does all your clothes. Those first two weeks, we didn't really go anywhere near where people lived. So we were out kind of into the middle of South Australia. So what I noticed was how Aboriginal people camped. There's an efficiency to the way that they live in the environment that I'd never seen before. I couldn't have imagined how to make myself so comfortable as some of these old people were in that environment, that they were able to make a cosy little spot for themselves under a bush. (laughs) You'd walk past the bush and you wouldn't even imagine that that would provide any kind of shelter, and yet these guys could somehow settle into it and and arrange their stuff around them so that they were cosy. On the second day, we picked up these two old Aboriginal men who got on the back with me, and to my absolute shock, they did not speak a word of English. I don't know why I was so naive, but it was like a fundamental plank of my existence was pulled out from underneath me to realise that there were Australians who did not speak English as their first language. And so I was sitting there on the back of this truck in my stupid clothes trying to communicate with these two old boys who were actually very good teachers of Yankunjara, the language that they spoke. And so for the next 10 days as we were driving over sand dunes, plotting the course of this mining road, they taught me a whole lot of words in Yankunjara and I worked out how to take proper field notes like a real anthropologist. And I can say while I was ludicrous, I was absolutely absolutely engaged with what I was doing. It was the most exciting thing I'd ever done in my life. The whole experience, I loved it, every minute of it. Do you remember what the words were that they taught you? The first one that they tried to teach me was a word for a bird. I was just pointing at things and saying, what do you call that? They said, that's an eagle look. So I was writing phonetically, writing down eagle look. And it was only when we stopped for the next cup of tea break that I proudly showed my wordless to one of the other anthros who was there and she said well that's actually English. Turned out to be their English approximation of eagle hawk. (laughs) Hang on a sec I'll see if I can find that notebook. There's some weird ones. Wadi which is the Western Desert word for man. Watawatani, being in charge of. (laughs) Waru, fire, minma, woman, kunka, a younger woman, kapi, water, kuka, meat, marlu, kangaroo. These are pretty good. 
you were going for this job interview yeah. for a job that it turned out you would have to learn another language for. Yeah, although I didn't realise that until I got there. What was weird about it was that this whole experience was the job interview. <laughs> um, that What they were trying to do is work out how I would operate because they would have to throw me in the deep end kind of thing, so they just did. After two weeks, they decided that I was an okay bloke and I was getting on all right, so they'd give me the job. I haven't actually looked at that word list for since I wrote it, I don't think. Alada, Cole, Mulapa, True, Wea, No, Ua, Yes, Punu, Firewood or Tree, Chichi, Child, Jikani, Drink. It goes on for pages and pages here. If you had asked the couple of old guys to tell you the word for gay, what do you think they would have said? I don't. That, no, there, there, is, there is no word. A man who sleeps with other men, they'd probably give you the word for brother or the word for, for men who go to ceremonies together. And if you tried to suggest that men, what do you call a man who fucks with another man? They'd be like, how, how, how would that work? Like, how is that possible? How would they fuck? John moved to the centre of Australia, Alice Springs. To get to the nearest gay bar, he would have had to drive for 16 hours. But he made some friends. I connected with the local gay group, 15 or 16 of us. Most of us transplants from other places, all around the same age, all young gay people, and we used to have dinner around at different people's houses, and every so often we'd have a disco somewhere, or we'd all go out to one of the local nightclubs together. One of the guys encouraged them to get politically active against HIV. They started a local AIDS council and helped educate and equip sex workers, gay people, and did outreach to schools. At that stage, One of the local men in Alice Springs who was Aboriginal and gay, he'd come from elsewhere, he developed AIDS and got very sick. The horror John had witnessed back in Sydney, it had found its way into the desert. Were you ever worried for your own life? Oh, yeah, I was terrified. And I did what everybody else did. Every time I got sick, I went and had a blood test to see if this was finally it. Because I'm an asthmatic and I used to get bronchitis all the time, every time I got bronchitis, the doctor would say, because they kind of vaguely suspected I might be gay, are you gay? Should we test you for HIV just in case this is pneumocystis pneumonia, one of the AIDS-related diseases? And every time they said it, I thought, that's it, I've got PCP, I'm going to die every single time. The Aboriginal man's death was a wake-up call for John and his friends. We weren't doing very much with the local Aboriginal communities around HIV prevention and that they were as much at risk as any of us. That's when I started to think, okay, as an anthropologist, I can possibly do something about HIV. John started talking with local Ananu people. They were really worried about HIV and they had every reason to be worried. They had ceremonies where they cut young men hundreds at a time. They were cut deeply and they were made to bleed in large groups. There was a lot of blood-to-blood contact. It was a potential HIV 
tragedy on a huge scale just waiting to happen. These people have been in the Central Australian desert for at least 50,000 years. To give you some idea about how much time that is, it was before anyone in the world had invented writing, agriculture, even the oldest clay pots aren't that old. The Americas were still covered in giant land mammals. There were sloths the size of grizzly bears and armadillos the size of Volkswagen beetles. It'd be tens of thousands of years before any human being would set foot in the Americas. So these people living in the Central Australian desert, they've endured one of the most inhospitable human habitats on Earth. They've survived countless droughts, British invasion, even open radioactive waste left over from nuclear bomb tests on their land. But in the 80s and 90s, a new threat piggybacked its way into the desert, an invisible threat. There are only a few thousand Ananu people in central Australia, and the HIV virus could infect all of their young people before they even knew it was among them. It would be nothing less than a holocaust. There are fewer than 3,000 Ananu people in central Australia, the largest language group in Australia, gone in a generation. They wanted to know whether they were at risk, and I had no idea, so I undertook to do some research. John's research took him to Mutajulu, a small village five hours southwest of Alice Springs, right next to Uluru or Ayers Rock. It's a remote community. It's 500 kilometres from Alice Springs. I arrived there on a Sunday. There was nobody to meet me. Somebody had left the key in the house that I was going to move into with the storekeeper, so I went and got the key and I let myself in. And it was a demountable house that was pretty dingy. It had had people living in it for the last 30 or 40 years and it was pretty run down. I was a vegetarian at the time. I couldn't have been more of a stereotype if I tried. And I went to cook something on the stove and whoever had been in the house immediately before me had been cooking a shitload of meat on the stove and every single part of the stove was just covered in meat fat. It took me three hours to clean the stove to the point where I could actually cook something on it and I just burst into tears and I just, (laughs) I cried for three days. Really? Yeah. Only time in my life I've ever been so homesick. (laughs) that complete feeling of dislocation. What on earth have I done committing to this place where I don't know anyone and nobody's got my back? This is before there were phones in those communities, so it wasn't like I could just bring up my mum and cry to her or whatever. That community at that stage had one telephone line Oh, actually, the phone when I first moved there was a radio phone as well, so you had to say, This is John, over. (laughs) And wait for the other person to talk and for them to say over before you talked again. I really felt really far away from everybody who knew me and loved me. When the community advisor saw how miserable I was, he got a contractor to come and paint all the rooms and put up some shelves for my books and basically make it a bit nicer for me, which made me feel better. Do you think, as a gay man, that fact introduced a whole another level of loneliness? Definitely. That kind of intimate contact was very unlikely to happen. I was certainly 
cagey about my sexuality. <laughs> I was cautious about talking about it. It was still illegal to have some forms of gay sex in three or four states of Australia. The age of consent for gay acts in the Northern Territory was some ridiculous amount. And I didn't know the people that I was working with at all, so I didn't know what their attitude to my sexuality might be. That's another kind of loneliness in a way. I moved there from inner-city Sydney where we were in the throes of a sexual revolution to a place where that consciousness just didn't exist. Like, people just didn't talk about sexuality, like any kind of sexuality. When John explained to Ananu people how a man could have sex with another man, they would laugh incredulously. When he pressed them, they would say, those kind of people, they're not welcome here. Mudijulu community at Uluru, even though it's in this incredibly rich part of the world in the sense that there's hundreds of thousands of tourists that go there each year and there's this big glamorous resort there, the Aboriginal community there is quite poor. It's small and poor. When I first went to live there in 1989, there weren't any houses for the Aboriginal people. There were 150 Aboriginal people there and only four houses. So most people lived outside. I ran out of bread one night and I went next door to my neighbour, Mrs Patterson, who lived under a bush and who had nothing. And I had this big house to myself. I said, can I borrow some bread? And she gave me half a loaf of bread. He was somebody who had absolutely nothing. He was giving me half of her nothing. And I had everything and still had nothing. been a bit of a hoarder. Even when I was living in this remote community, I had a house full of stuff. All the young single blokes in the community used to just come in and out of my house and they particularly loved my ablution products, perfume, moisturisers and hair gel and all that sort of stuff. They loved that. And they loved my clothes because I've always had ludicrously bad tasting clothes, very bright coloured shirts and loud patterns and stuff. And they were always expensive because, you know, Sydney gay boy, and this bunch of guys would come in into your house and go through your wardrobe, take what they liked, use up all your perfume and all your moisturiser that you'd spent hundreds of dollars on and take off, and you never saw any of this stuff again. (laughs) But you're free to do the same with their stuff. yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. The first year, it really, really upset me, and I was thinking, oh, I've just got to not have things because they don't value them, blah, blah, blah. And then after a while I thought, why am I so attached to this stuff? You know, it's ridiculous. And they thought I was ridiculous. I'd get upset when they'd take my favourite shirt and I'd say, don't take that one, I love that shirt. And it's like, well, get another fucking shirt. You know, what's your problem? (laughs) Or the Young Kajara equivalent of that thought. But I got them back a few times. There was this one guy who was incredibly vain and he bought himself these really expensive R.M. Williams 
cowboy boots. And they had a Cuban heel and they were jet black suede. They're called Midnight Santa Fe's. He came to my house to show me these shoes. And I said, oh, can I have them? <laughs> They're just the right size for me. And you could see on his face that he knew he had to give them to me because I'd asked for them. And he really didn't want to give them to me. I burst out laughing and let him off the hook. Every so often they had something I wanted. But, you know, incredibly generous too. If they saw something they thought I'd like when they were in Alice Springs or something, they'd buy it for me and give it to me. I've still got T-shirts and I don't know what you call them, a bolo tie that one of the young fellows from the community bought for me because he thought I'd like it. And he was right, I did. (laughs) There were a couple of guys who just kind of adopted me. They kind of got used to being in my house You'd be talking to somebody and it'd be time to go to bed and they'd want to keep talking so they'd come and lie next to you and then you'd wake up next to them the next morning. Did men sleep in the same bed in their culture? Yeah, all the time, but they didn't have sex with each other. Young married guys particularly who were fighting with their wives, I used to get a lot of them because it was somewhere else in their community they could go and stay that was not going to get them into a jealous fight with their wife that they were already fighting with. The guy who was really fond of, who was also really fond of me, lived next door to me and his wife was a psycho. He would frequently end up sleeping at my place because he didn't feel safe. (laughs) Or he didn't think that she would be safe if he stayed there, I think. John and his friend went everywhere together for nearly a year. Two times his friend came over drunk and invited John to have threesomes with him and a woman. The first time John refused, the man came back afterward to sleep over. The second time John refused, his friend didn't even go to see the woman. He decided to stay with John instead. As he lay next to John, he sang a ceremonial song and masturbated for half an hour till he fell asleep. Do you think that he was gay? I think in another world, with another set of possibilities, he would definitely have considered that possibility. I don't know. I've got terrible gaydar, so I think everybody's a bit gay. (laughs) I think what I learned from living in that culture was that some of the artificial distinctions we make between sexualities really are very arbitrary. One of the things I found really intriguing in Central Australia was with Aboriginal people the complete lack of awareness around gayness as a thing. The idea that men would have sex with men, it wasn't even something they would feel disgusted about. They just didn't think about it. They didn't even acknowledge the possibility of it. Like, it just wasn't a thing. But they knew what gay was at that point. Not really. But you'd had conversations with people about, well, here's this is what gay means, right? Hadn't you? Yeah, but I don't think it kind of... I don't think they got it. I just don't think they got it. I mean, there was a hilarious conversation with my friend Todd, who's passed away now, who was looking through a book of Mapplethorpe photos that I had, and there was a picture of a bald man. This fellow's got some kind of alopecia, so he's got no hair whatsoever on his head, so no eyebrows, no eyelashes, nothing. And Todd said, oh, he's gay. And I said, oh, how can you tell? And he said, he's got no hair. And I said, what, what is gay then? Well, you know, what do you think gay is? Because <laughs> I have hair. 
I still don't know. I have no idea what he meant. <laughs> he just didn't get it. In Ananu society, it wasn't that unusual that John had been single for more than two years. To them, he was a child. He hadn't been initiated. For an Ananu boy to become a man, he attends ceremonies over several years, and he's cut multiple times. The Ananu believe that blood is the physical form of spirits. Men's bodies are decorated in blood to transform the human body into an ancestral one. John was worried that one carrier of HIV in a ceremony could directly infect thousands of men, who would then travel back to their homes for several hours in every direction and infect their communities. I didn't really know what they did in ceremonies. Most of the stuff I'd read was completely wrong. John was there to help stop the spread of the virus, but he was an outsider. He was dealing with a tradition that had lasted a thousand generations. What's more, nobody would tell him what went on in the ceremonies. It was secret men's business. I was effectively a child, socially and culturally, and that made no sense to the people I was dealing with. So they needed to initiate you? Yeah. They just thought, oh, well, he's been here long enough. He's obviously committed to staying here for a while. We'll just put him through the law and then we can tell him everything. We're at Docker River, which is on the border of Western Australia and Northern Territory. We were there for a couple of weeks and it was quite pleasant. The initiated men went off each day and you could sort of hear them in the distance singing and come back and be exhausted. And the women and us non-initiated people spent the day making dampers or catching rabbits and cooking them and doing stuff so that when the men came back they were pretty exhausted and there was food for them to eat and take drinks around for them. I hadn't taken any books with me and there were a couple of empty houses there that we camped around and could use the toilets of and somebody had left a copy of James Michener's Hawaii in one of these houses, and I read that over the course of three weeks. You love Hawaiians as potential converts, but you despise them as people. I don't believe in your god of wrath. It is the worst book I've ever read, <laughs> and, but it was really long, so it kept me occupied. There was a guy that I worked with quite a lot. He had to find out if I was already circumcised and because there are a couple of different levels of ceremony, he had to work out where I was going to fit in. So, wait, you're camping somewhere for a couple of weeks, waiting for this kind of mystery ceremony to take place. Yeah, and without are... actually knowing what they were talking <laughs> about either. Like, what do you mean a ceremony will come? Like, there were lots of questions that I... That I <laughs> I could ask, and and, your and the answers made no kind of sense. <laughs> and he's asking you, so, so how how cut up is your penis? Yeah, <laughs> did that make you nervous? Oh yeah, and <laughs> and even kind of describing to me what they might do, it was still very vague in my head what was going to happen <laughs> or how that might happen. At this point, did you know what their men's penises look like? I thought I did, but I didn't. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And the difference between knowing what they look like and what they are like when you have one is another world altogether. 
So you... I, look, I think if anybody understood what was going to happen before they went, nobody would go because it is horrendous. Finally, the rest of this ceremony turned up and the pace and the anxiety in the camp really picked up and a lot of people arrived. There had been maybe a couple of hundred people there prior to this, but when the main ceremony turned up, there were a couple of thousand people there. The next morning, the men got up as they had been doing, but much earlier, so before sunrise, and a whole bunch of men came to see me beforehand and they said, okay, be ready because we'll come and get you. Just before the sun came up, a couple of young blokes not much older than me came and didn't say a word, just grabbed me by the arm, put me in a car and drove me out to this ceremonial ground and made me lie on my face in a line with a whole bunch of other young guys going through initiation. We're all lying on the ground. As the sun was coming up, there was just endless singing that went on for a couple of hours of this low low-volume polyphonic, highly rhythmic singing that was almost hypnotic. And I think part of the design of the music is to calm and hypnotise the new initiates. <laughs> we were lying with our faces down and our kind of backs to the ceremony. You had your face in the lap of somebody, uh, another bloke, and every so often he would just tap you on the head and make you look behind at the dance that was going on and they were kind of terrifying dancers, a lot of blood and, you know, naked, bleeding men. But you couldn't really work out what you were seeing. It was confusing and unexpected. After a while, somebody came in, took my clothes off. And the sun was up full now. It was really hot. And so lying there face down in the dirt, naked, that was incredibly <laughs> terrifying. I was suddenly aware of being this completely unprotected white body, completely surrounded by black bodies, and just feeling 100,000% vulnerable. I thought, if they murdered me, nobody would know what ever happened to me. Nobody would ever know. Not that they were ever going to murder me, but... Panic attacks are irrational. Yeah. I won't talk about the ceremonial bit because it's kind of secret. But it was the first time I'd really been completely out of control of what was happening to my body. Having a major operation out under a tree in 50-degree heat because it's always in the middle of summer. I think they worked out a very long time ago that if you do it in winter, people die of shock. Afterwards, you're kind of bleeding and in shock. <laughs> a couple of blokes come and take you in threes off to one side and just make sure you're not bleeding too much and helping you to clean the wound. And then you spend the afternoon in the shade, people bring you drinks and watching more dancing, watching more dancing, but you get to watch it now. 
there's already a sense that your status has changed, that your face is not hidden anymore. You're a part of the ceremony that's happening. The next day, somebody came and drove a bunch of us back to my place. And we spent about six weeks not able to go outside. You let them cut your penis? I had no choice. (laughs) Once I committed to going to the ceremony, I was no longer in charge of my penis. (laughs) Really? (laughs) I mean, how does that work? Like, wouldn't you see the knife coming or see what they're doing to the other men and go, hey, no, I'm just here for work? No. No. This, leave me out of this. Like no. Got, uh, no, I was, yeah, I was a bit naive, I suppose, but it was exactly what needed to happen for me to do what I needed to do for the rest of the time I was there. So even if I had known in advance, I probably would have done it anyway. What sort of level of cutting are you talking about? Significant. And what's it called? What's the name of this procedure? Sub-incision. Sub-incision is essentially mutilation of the penis. If you don't want to hear the specifics, don't listen for the next 30 seconds. Yeah, I'll play a 30-second track of music underneath it. Once the music stops, it's safe to listen. John's penis was cut open on the underside, starting from the tip down the length of the penis. It's not a superficial cut. It's right to the tube in the centre. It would have been left open to heal, making it wider and flatter. So a sub-incised penis kind of resembles a sausage that's been cut open at a barbecue to make sure the inside gets cooked evenly. Basically, a sub-incised penis looks like it has an open vagina on the underside. But a mutilated penis could have easily been the least of his worries. The men had cut hundreds of young men. In order to study HIV infection, John had exposed himself to a huge risk. It was the early 90s and there were no antiviral drugs. AIDS meant death. So your penis was sub-incised. I mean, that's very extreme. (laughs) Right? Well, only from a culturally relative point of view, like... Every single man in that culture, and there's thousands of them. I came from a culture which cut the foreskin off every single male baby, apart from a few. They thought that was extreme. They thought that was disgraceful. (laughs) They do that at about age 12. Apparently it was a big issue when they were translating the Bible into Pitanjaro. At day 12, the presentation in the temple was a circumcision ceremony for Jesus. They're trying to explain why the Jews were putting a baby through men's law. (laughs) (laughs) We do lots of extreme things to our bodies, like anybody who has a tattoo, piercing, it's all extreme. Yeah, but, I mean, I don't have tattoos. I used to have some piercings, but... (laughs) I'd cover my body in all of those things probably before I messed around with my penis. But, uh, wow, how do you explain that to somebody when it comes to sort of crunch time? I've had different approaches over the years. Some people I just don't say anything and 
in the way that we are reticent about disability frequently. People just pretend not to notice uh, and that's fine. Other people, I tell them exactly what it is and that often freaks them out, that somehow it being a religious thing is much more freaky than it just being a naturally occurring thing. And some people I imply that it's something that I've had done to enhance my sexual pleasure or whatever. <laughs> and they go, oh, well, does it work? <laughs> is there any truth to that, though? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I have that what's technically called the meatus, the little hole in the end of your penis that is incredibly sensitive. Well, just imagine if the whole of your penis was that sensitive. Wow. It's incredible. And do you think that's why they do it? I've spent nearly 30 years trying to work out why they do it and in the end given it up as just an ineffable mystery. I don't think it occurs to anybody these days to question why it is done. It's just done. Do you ever regret it? Uh, Not so much now. You know, I've been in a stable relationship for 17 years, so I think at, at the time between leaving the desert and meeting my partner where I was kind of playing the field a bit and trying to find someone, I think there were times then where I regretted it. To do what I wanted to do, I really had to go through that ceremony. I am an anthropologist of the secret, sacred men's Western Desert business now. I'm the go-to guy for that stuff. And I'm trusted by Aboriginal people to talk about it. In terms of professional regrets, I've got none. Personal regrets, not really. There are anthropologists who had far worse things happen to them. There was a guy who got his head chopped off in, in the Philippines who was studying headhunting cults. You go off and live in somebody else's culture, you're inevitably changed, and some of those changes are physical and some of them are, are psychological and some of them are metaphysical. Mm. But nobody comes back unchanged. We weren't allowed to go outside until we could walk without wincing or limping or whatever. There's about six of us in that house. Men would come every day and bring us food and bring us other stuff. Milk and bread and meat. Come and talk to us for hours on end about anything. Tell jokes, laugh. The first time somebody had sex after the ceremonies, they would talk to the other guys They went through the ceremonies about the experience, like nothing burst, there was no gushes of blood, <laughs> that kind of stuff. A sub-incised penis is wide and fragile, and it's constantly re-injured over ceremonies over several years. Going to these ceremonies five or six times, I just ask more and more questions about... Okay, so what can you do and what can't you do? Basically, sub-incised men in this culture are told they can have vaginal sex, but that's it. Everything else is likely to be painful and potentially dangerous. Things like that men might do with each other's bodies just become reasonably uncomfortable 
because you've now got scar tissue where there wasn't scar tissue before or you've got openings where there weren't openings before. So no oral, no anal, no masturbation except during ceremonies. It's a penis that's been reshaped purely for reproduction. This means that a man's penis is not to be handled or even seen by a woman ever, even during sex. It was so weird. Within the space of five or ten years, going from a community that didn't even have telephones to a community where every single house had a TV and a video machine and men had access to VCR porn. Sitting and watching straight porn with guys, they were just intrigued with the sort of shit that white people get up to. Ananu people don't regard a woman's body as erotic. A man's body is erotic. And outside of intercourse, a man's body is none of women's business. Just the fact that white men would let somebody take photos of their penis or photos of them having sex, they would just thought everybody who was in a porn movie and therefore all white people were just sluts and perverted sluts at that. And I can just remember being with a bunch of young guys and they're watching a woman giving a man a blowjob and they're just pissing themselves laughing. Oh my God, he's putting it in her mouth. Like, what's wrong with these people? That was just very, very funny. The level of intimacy around all kinds of things around thoughts and feelings and body functions was far greater with those men that I wasn't having sex with than it has been with men that I've been in in sexual relationships with. In Pitanjara society, even with your wife, you don't have a personally intimate relationship. It's all about the sex and the procreation and the food-producing capacity of the couple. Your intimacy is all with your boys. After going through ceremonies for a few years, John was finally privy to secret men's business. He could ask everything he needed to ask as an anthropologist. He worked with the elders to establish routine screening and to ensure infected blood wasn't used in ceremonies. But he'd also realised something important. These people hadn't maintained the world's oldest surviving culture by being reckless. Their ceremonies and their lives at large were governed by strict but adaptable laws. It's possible they'd encountered or even predicted bloodborne diseases well before Europeans arrived because they'd already had some fail-safes in place. The Ananu survived the HIV epidemic, and their culture is still around today. In fact, they're the largest Aboriginal language group in Australia. John wrote about this in his thesis, along with detailed explanations of Pitanjara sexual and relationship norms, and he pointed out that condoms needed to be developed to fit the unusual shape of Ananu men's penises. Most of John's thesis is still under embargo. He made an agreement uh, with some of the Pitanjara men that it wouldn't be published in their lifetimes. In the eyes of the Ananu, John was no longer a child. He was a young fella, which meant time for marriage. People kept throwing different women as possibilities in front of me, including some women used to come and visit me in the hope that I might want to have kids with them and be their husband for a while. Then they discovered I wasn't interested and there was a couple of women who used to come and tease me about it all the time. And I became very friendly with an old woman in the community named Barbara Jickadoo who is still alive there. And she used to treat me like one of her old girlfriends and, in fact, called me Kunka a lot of the time accidentally. The way people say girlfriend these days, listen, girlfriend, and she's like, Kunka, she should have called me Waddy. 
and then she'd get all flustered because she got it wrong. I think Barbara Jickadoo knew, had worked it out. But I think people kind of got used to the idea that I was anomalous. In 1992, I came to Brisbane and did some training for my PhD. I met him at the Sportsman's Hotel. His name is Gordon, a central Queensland Aboriginal man. He'd grown up in a relatively westernised sort of way, but in a country town in Queensland with a large Aboriginal population, never very far from other Aboriginal people or Aboriginal culture. The first time, you know, you're out of that cultural milieu and you meet somebody and you think, oh, shit, if I take my pants off, this is just going to be a disaster. Like, this guy's going to freak out. (laughs) When he saw my equipment, he knew what it meant, and I think that made it easier for me that I didn't have to explain why, why I was cut like that. I went back to the desert and we wrote back and forth to each other and then he was at a bit of a loose end and didn't have a job. I said, well, why don't you come out here for a while and see how you like it? And he got on a plane and came and loved it from the minute he arrived, got himself a job at the resort and then got a job in the national park working on the front gate of the park, taking money off tourists. He's a very friendly, amusing guy got along with people really easily he stayed for four years sleeping in the same bed and people were aware of that and yet they didn't seem to think there was anything odd about the fact that we lived together or even that we slept in the same bed did you ever get the sense that anyone questioned it further than that even once no <laughs> not at all not, not even at once. all no Even when people came around, you know, came into the house and sort of came into the bedroom to to wake me up and, you know, he's there sleeping in the bed with me. Nobody thought there was anything strange about that. (laughs) They were oblivious to it because it just wasn't a category of personal behaviour that they had language for or ideas for. John doesn't begrudge his Ananu friends for not accepting homosexuality. In fact, as an anthropologist, he seems to kind of admire it. In his thesis, he wrote, As an ecological steady-state system geared at ensuring maximum reproductive success, it couldn't be improved. In other words, you don't survive in the desert for 50,000 years without a sure-fire plan for reproduction. As people got older, if they didn't have kids to go out and get protein then they died. Aboriginal people were old in their 40s. Basically, every couple needed to replace themselves in order to survive into old age. You walk for 40Ks on the understanding that there will be a water hole when you get there that will have water in it. But the only thing you have to rely on is a dreaming story that somebody has passed down to you about where that water hole is and how reliable the water in it is. Today, we're surrounded by stories about death and survival on TV, in magazines and in podcasts. But if you skip a season of Breaking Bad and you don't see Walter White blow up the old folks home or whatever, it's probably not going to matter. Nobody's going to die from your ignorance. The Ananu's stories were different. They were survival guides. 
And John, he'd given them a new story, a story about surviving an epidemic he'd lived through back in Sydney. It was a story with a warning, and it was the last in an anthology of stories that helped the Ananu to survive. John was the hero of this story, but he would go on to become the victim, the character who shirks the warning and pays the price. When I finally did get HIV, it was kind of an anticlimax. When did you get HIV? I probably contracted it in 1993, but I got diagnosed in 96. They said to me, you should start putting your affairs in order because you've probably got three to five years to live. So I was, what, 35 at the time. That was a pretty grim sort of thing to hear. It must have been horrifying. I can't imagine that it was that much of an anti-climax. Well, it was more of an embarrassment than anything else because, you know, I was five years into a public health PhD about HIV prevention at the time that I got diagnosed with HIV. It's like, you know, I've studied this disease for five years, I've studied prevention of it for five years, and I still managed to get infected? Like, what the...? So you felt like it was unprofessional? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That wasn't my first thought. My first thought was that I was not going to get to see the next Star Wars movie, episode one. People who like Star Wars probably say, well, that would have been a blessing. There was a World AIDS conference in Vancouver that year, the same week that I was diagnosed, and they made an announcement at that conference that they had finally found a drug regime that was effective in controlling HIV. So I became HIV positive the week it became a medically manageable disease. I remember on my 40th birthday, when I was perfectly well, being able to celebrate the fact that I actually hadn't died. <laughs> Wasn't even sick. Several years after his 40th birthday, and 10 years after leaving the desert, John met the only gay Ananu man he's ever even heard of. He was brought up in Docker River and Arionga, I think. He hadn't been through the law, initiation and ceremony. Realised on trips to Adelaide that he was attracted to men, managed to contract HIV and was not getting great care in central Australia, so his doctor sent him to Melbourne and he lived there down the road from me. So I was one of his carers. I think the first time I met him, he was dancing to Pussycat Dolls, Don't You Wish Your Girlfriend Was Hot Like Me, and that was kind of the way that I remember him. (laughs) It wasn't very many years since that kind of thing would have been impossible, but I don't know, he was just really oblivious (laughs) to the kind of ground that he was breaking, I think. 
And he wasn't a very deep thinker. <laughs> so trying to get him to reflect on what he'd gone through was quite difficult. He was kind of a free spirit. Yeah, he was really a free spirit. Tristan passed away quite suddenly and somewhat unexpectedly. I think he was only 22 when he died. That's very sad. He was the, the only gay Pittenjara person I've ever met. Huge Beyonce fan. A lot of his female relatives particularly came down to Melbourne for the, the memorial service we had. They were incredibly accepting of the fact that he was gay, that he'd had HIV, all of the things that we thought would be insurmountable for Pitanjara people. They seemed to have no problem dealing with because he was a member of the community. It was a funny sort of thing. When people talked in the abstract about how they would deal with HIV or how they would deal with gay people, it was always, oh, we don't want them here, or we'd send those people packing. But I don't think it occurred to them that somebody from their own community might be the person that they were talking about. And of course they couldn't send them packing because they're their brother and their son and their uncle and their nephew and their grandson. I suppose in a culture like that, the social ties are everything. The bonds are what they've been relying on for thousands of years, right? Yeah. Like having each other's backs is more important than... Yeah, it's fundamental to survival and it's absolutely ingrained in people's values. But I think there's still a level of denial there that, oh yeah, he's gay and we understand what gay is, but this is his promised wife and that's the woman he'll have kids with. Today, John Willis is a medical anthropologist specialising in Indigenous health at the University of Queensland. A huge thanks to John for speaking with me for this episode. Thanks also to Sydney's 2SER for supporting this series. And thanks to Nina Copel, Jake Morecambe, Marilia Costa, Liam O'Donoghue and my other friends and colleagues for their constructive feedback. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. My name is Lawrence Bull and you've been listening to Sound of Mind. Actually, one more thing. If you like this episode, and I'm assuming you liked it enough to listen all the way through, I need you to do one simple thing. I'm doing this podcast independently, which means I don't have a marketing budget. And even if I did, I wouldn't know what to do with it. Whether this podcast continues depends entirely on word of mouth. Anything you can do to get the word out would be a huge help at this point. Post on social media would be great. Just bringing this episode up in a conversation Think of one friend who might like it and tell them about it next time you see them. If someone's sitting nearby to you, pick up their phone, open their podcast app and subscribe them right now. They don't even have to know about it. Please just pick one thing you can do and let just anybody else know about this. That would be great. Thank you so much. 